everybody welcome to the show um got a full one for you today i'm gonna lead with the police union and um a rant that went viral from the head of the police union i have a lot to say about that because you know you could be forgiven if you didn't know how babyish a lot of these people are so i'll talk about that fox news tried to play gotcha with the left And they asked a bunch of regular people what they think of defunding the police. And I actually think that in the process of trying to dunk on it, they they exposed some wisdom in it. So I will dive into that and uh, tell everybody what's happening with the Overton window. Then we have Tucker Carlson with an amazing conspiracy theory about how the left are trying to take over the police. I will be dunking on CNN pundit Chris Saliza as well because... Yet again, he falls into one of the most obvious and pathetic traps of the Trump era. Um, Later on in the show, we'll dive into Donald Trump demanding apologies for poll numbers. (laughs) It almost sounds fake when I say it, but I swear to you it's real. Uh, And just how prominent is Antifa in, you know, all these protests and these movements across the country? Plus, Sean Hannity... Uh, invites on Cornell West and then has a total meltdown of a segment. So I can't wait to talk about that one as well. So let me just take a little sippy sip of this big seltzer real quick. And then we'll get started. The head of the police union in New York City lashed out at virtually everybody in this speech that he gave that went viral. Let's take a look. 
Michael Mira. I'm the president of the New York State Association of PBAs. And I just want to talk to, to, to you, to Brett, and I'm going to the police officers. $375 million interaction with the public every year. Million interactions, overwhelmingly positive responses, overwhelmingly positive responses. But I read in the papers all week, we all read in the papers that in the black community, mothers are worried about their children getting home from school without being killed by a cop. What world are we living in? That doesn't happen. It does not happen. I am not Derek Chabon. They are not him. He killed someone. We did. We are restrained. And you know what? I'm saying this to all the cops here. Because you know what? Everybody's trying to shame us. The legislators. The press. Everybody's trying to shame us into being embarrassed about our profession. But you know what? This is stained by someone in Minneapolis. It's still got a shine on it. And so do theirs. So do theirs. Stop treating us like animals and bugs. And start treating us with some respect. That's what we're here today to say. We've been left out of the conversation. We've been vilified. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Trying to make us embarrassed of our profession. 375 million interactions, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly positive. Nobody talks about all the police officers that were killed in the last week in the United States of America, and there were a number of them. We don't condone Minneapolis. We roundly reject what he did as disgusting. Disgusting. It's not what we do. Now what police officers do. Our legislators abandoned us. The press is vilifying us. Well, you know what, guys? I'm proud to be a cop. And I'm going to continue to be proud to be a cop until the day I retire. And that's all I have to say. Now, somebody on Twitter, and I wish I had the name so I could give credit to the original person who made this, but somebody decided, I'm going to remix that a little bit because uh, it feels more appropriate given um, what's been going on around the country to splice in some of the other things. So watch this. Everybody's trying to shame us. The legislators. The press. Oh my God. Everybody's trying to shame us. It's being embarrassed. But you know what? This is not stain. It's still got a shine on it. Stop treating us like animals and bugs. Treating us with some respect. It's disgusting. 
resist! Don't resist! Don't resist! Don't resist, bro! I'm done! And that's all I have to Listen, the thing about this that's so frustrating is that you're an employee of the people. Would you be able to get away with yelling at your boss like that, taking that tone with your boss? I don't think so. I think anybody who yells at their boss like that is probably going to get fired. But this guy has this sense, like there's no repercussions. And so he goes out there and does this whiny, moany, bitchy press conference where he's yelling at the public and it's like, oh, 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 hold on, son. We're your boss. You're not our boss. You don't lord over us. So it really highlights this mentality that they have. This mentality of like, they feel entitled. And that's the entire problem is that police seem to feel entitled to be in this overlord category where they get to act in a way that's not fully in accordance with the law and their rebuttal to you is, well, I'm trying here and I kind of end the law. And that's totally unacceptable. You're supposed to be the professional in the situation. They don't get that and they don't care. They don't understand that protect and serve means you're supposed to be better than. So, you know, it reminds me of the typical conservative dodge. Whenever you bring up police brutality, they go to, well, what about black-on-black violence? And to shift the conversation to let's talk about crime as opposed to police brutality is to deny the fact that our public servants are uniquely responsible to the people and need to be held to a higher standard. You're supposed to want the professionalism from them. Now, we can have the conversation about what leads to crime and what the solutions are. Now, they're not going to like the substance of that conversation either because a lot of that goes into having more education, more economic opportunity, so on and so forth. So there are left-wing answers to that problem as well. But really, it's just a category error. We're not supposed to be having that conversation. If the conversation is police brutality, then there needs to be a way to hold the police accountable and to change the way they do the job to keep them professional and to make it so that they realize their job is to protect and serve. Nobody in any other job could get away with whining like that and have no consequences. But instead, there's like, there's this feeling of entitlement and there's this feeling almost like it's a bad relationship or something and, and the police have been holding in the way they feel about the public for so long and now they feel like, I'm just going to let it all out. You know what? You've been, uh, you've been making me feel really bad here and I'm trying, all right? And, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of our encounters are good with the public, so why are we getting no credit? Why are you shaming us? Why are you treating us like thugs? Listen, in the United States of America, about 1,000 people die every single year because of cops. Now, there's some percentage of that that's legitimate in the sense that it really is like defensive violence on the part of the cops. But understand that in other developed countries, virtually nobody gets killed by the cops. In many developed countries, cops are not even armed. I mean, if they need to show up to a situation where they have to be armed, they'll be armed. But just, you know, in standard everyday procedure, they're not armed with lethal weapons. So, This idea of like this victimhood complex 
like there's nothing that's there to be fixed and like they're doing nothing wrong is really the heart of the problem. He, he says in there, our legislators abandoned us. Legislators abandon you? How? How did they abandon you? Because they're like mildly asking for some tiny degree of justice? First of all, there's not a single legislator who I've seen who's on board. Well, actually, maybe there are some people like Ilhan Omar I saw repeat the slogan. And I guess Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez I saw repeat the slogan, the defund the police thing. But like 99.9% of actual legislators and politicians are not saying defund the police. The stuff that they're all asking for is just the standard solutions, like the Campaign Zero solutions, which I've brought up on this show a million times. End the broken windows policing, do community oversight, limit the use of force, independently investigate and prosecute the bad cops, community representation, body cameras on the police, film them, can't turn them off a penalty of law, new training towards de-escalation, end for-profit policing, demilitarization, fair police union contracts. I'll add on top of that, end the drug war, which is the most important one because that's the, that's the fuel that allows them to subjugate and oppress poor communities and communities of color. So that's all people are asking for. In other words, people are asking for you to do your job the way you're supposed to do your job. I mean, everybody would have a very high opinion of the police if they understood, okay, we're going to go ahead and put a priority on going after the robbers, the murderers, the rapists, the pedophiles, the financial criminals on Wall Street committing fraud in insane rate. That's where we're going to put our focus. All these petty crimes that shouldn't even really be crimes. No, we're not going to do that. And we're not going to act like an occupying army. You wonder where the bad feelings towards police come from. Yes, it's the fact that they act like an occupying army in many communities. So it's just, I mean, honestly, this is a wake-up call to many people. Um, when you see all the videos of the police brutality that came out over the past, you know, couple weeks, and then you see that this is their reaction, there really is a sense of, like, we're above accountability. We are the law. So we get to say whatever we want. We get to do whatever they want. And the fact that this guy can give this, you know, victimhood entitled rant really is everything wrong with policing. This mindset is everything wrong with policing. No introspection, no realizing your job is to serve the community, to protect and serve. You have to be professional. You have to be better than. You have to be held to a higher standard. Everybody's just asking for the obvious changes. Like, what do you want? And the answer is simple. They want to be armed to the teeth, and they want no accountability for however they act because they want you to think, oh, when it's the police, they mean well, so they get to do whatever they want, and we'll just file out under the category of they mean well, so it's okay. No, that's not how we're supposed to function in a developed country. That's not how that works. When you guys do offensive violence, as you so often have done within the past couple of weeks, that's supposed to be just as illegal as a civilian doing offensive violence. So it's really unacceptable. And um, I'll tell you what. There are a lot of people who formerly had a very, very high opinion of the cops who've had an enlightenment moment in these past couple of weeks. 
when I saw the Buffalo police officer shove the 75-year-old man, he's bleeding from the ear, then I saw the next day 57 officers resigned in solidarity with the two officers who were suspended for shoving the 75-year-old man. I realized that, oh, okay, so this isn't an instance of a few bad apples. There's a sense through the entire police force of impunity. They're above the public. And so they're demanding leeway to act in ways that would otherwise be unethical and immoral and illegal. And I totally reject that. Because then you become the criminal when you act in that way. 57 cops resigning in solidarity with the ones who shoved a 75-year-old man and made him bleed out of his ear. 57. And like everybody else, when I started reading the headline, I thought they were going to say 57 cops resign in solidarity with the 75-year-old man. No. They did it in solidarity with the cops who, who shoved the old man. That's a light bulb moment. This is a light bulb moment here. Like, even given, like, what are you going to do? You're just going to deny? See, I won't deny that there's some rioters and some looters, and I condemn that. I'm not okay with that. They appear to be denying that there's any instances other than, you know, the killing of George Floyd, that, like, any of the, any of the examples in the past two weeks exist of the cops being the aggressors. We've seen a million. There's a thread on Twitter that's over 300 tweets long with unambiguous, clear examples of police violence and them initiating it. You're just going to gloss over all that and act like there's nothing to fix here? You, you shoulder no blame? You're going to play the victim card? You're going to be whiny and entitled? Imagine being in, in a position of power and authority and being this whiny. You know what's crazy? This even makes politicians look good. <laughs> Because I don't know about you guys, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a politician give this kind of like an angry, like, like, you don't appreciate us and we're trying our best here. I don't think I've ever seen a politician do that. At least there's some understanding from politicians like, okay, yeah, I'm supposed to be the person who is representing the people. So I can't yell at the people and blame the people and act entitled because they're my boss and I would look ridiculous. I'd look like a petty little idiot. Totally different. Not even bothering to pretend. So entitled, so whiny. Fix the problems in policing. Now, by the way, I'm actually not suggesting that they even have the capacity to do that. Because they don't. The real answer does come from the politicians. But I'd go as far, man, as doing a, a literal purge of all the police departments. If you've had more than three complaints of any kind against you over your policing career, you're gone. You're gone. And I don't care if we end up firing 85% of the police officers that currently are police officers. If that's what it takes to make a police department what it's supposed to be, those who protect and serve, those who are ethical, those who are professional, so be it. So be it. If that's what we need. I also love the other idea that I told you guys I heard on uh, NBA on TNT. Kenny Smith said, a police-to-police law where... Whatever the worst officer is guilty of, any officer around that officer is also guilty of that crime. So in other words, if you see a police officer, like what happened to George Floyd, one of them on his neck, if you had this law in place, the other officers would be like, get off. Because if he dies, all of them are guilty of second-degree murder, which is what he was charged with. I mean, 
it seems harsh, but if that's what it takes to stop this kind of violent mindset, then hell yeah, that's what we got to do. So it's time for a real change. And I think it's funny because his attempt was to do the opposite, was to make people feel like, hey, come on, we're doing a good job over here. We're doing as best as we can. If anything, this just further solidified my position that we have to do all the campaign zero reforms plus ending the drug war, plus a zero tolerance approach in terms of, you know, complaints against the police and brutality and instances of unprofessionalism, plus the police to police law. I'm not sure I've seen a single police reform idea that I haven't supported that I think would drastically change everything. Honestly, even if even if you just end the drug war, that alone takes away so much of the fuel that allows for the police, you know, oppressing various communities up front. So that's the answer. Congratulations to this guy for having the exact opposite of the intended effect. You come across like a whiny, insecure, bitchy, unstable, unprofessional idiot who now drastically needs to get reined in. That's what you are. I know you're trying to come across as the opposite. Like, hey, get off our bus. We're doing our best here. No. Now I want them more involved. Now I want more restraints. Now I want more cops fired. Because this attitude, this mindset, this entitled, entitled way of viewing the world is unacceptable. Okay, next. So Fox News tried to play got you with the left here, and they asked a bunch of regular people on the streets what they think of the slogan, the defund the police slogan. And um, the answers here are interesting, and I think they – it tells an interesting story. When we come back, I'll break that down. The fun police movement might be the latest social media hashtag, but a new Yahoo News YouGov poll finds that only 16% of Americans want to defund the police, and 65% of Americans opposed it. I talked with New Yorkers today, and this is what they had to say. With all the issues that's going on, some people say we should defund the police department. Should we get rid of the police department? I don't think we should get rid of it. I just think, obviously, you should get out the ones that are not perfect or, you know, bad. If a couple of bad cops did something bad, destructive, why should we get rid of the whole police department? That doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. So we should keep the police department or defund the police department? We should keep the police department. And why should we keep the police department? Because they need to protect us. I think more funding should be allocated to preparing and prepping the officers that's in training to deal with the, the social issues and the communities that they work in. Should we defund the police department? Yes and no. I kind of feel like you should, and I kind of feel like you shouldn't, because we need to, uh, you know, protect us. You think we should just improve the police department? Yeah, if you improve the, improve the police department and do away with the, what's that called, a chokehold? A chokehold. <laughs> a chokehold. I agree with you, yes. With all the tension that's been going on right now in the city, um, we need to try to find solutions to defuse it and also show the people that, okay, the police are here. We're not your enemy. We're here to help you and to serve you. 
Sean, as you can see, most people that I spoke with didn't want to defund the police, but they do think certain reforms need to take place. Now, Ted Cruz, believe it or not, demonstrates this same dynamic. He went on Twitter and he said something along the lines of, well, like defending the police department is insane, of course not, but we all agree on reforming. We all agree on reforming. And listen, I know that this is not the intention of many of the activists who are saying let's defund the police department. I know many of them mean defund the police department. Although others, to be fair, who I've spoken to do not mean defund the police department. They mean that as in like just totally rework and change the way we do policing. So I don't want to get into you know, the debate and the disagreements because people mean different things when they say that. But what's happening is this is having the intended effect of dragging the Overton window back to the left, which actually is something that the Republicans have done for decades now, which has led to Washington creeping further and further to the right. So, you know, just to give one example on that, in the healthcare debate, the Republican position was, let's do absolutely nothing. That was the Republican position in the debate. And they would argue for that. <laughs> let's do nothing. And so what ended up happening was Obama and the Democrats moved further and further to the right until they were at the original Republican idea from the 1980s and the 1990s, which was the individual mandate system. That's what Obama, that's what Obamacare effectively was. That's what it ended up being. But that was a right-wing idea that came from the Heritage Foundation. How did we get to that place where the Democrats are proposing right-wing solutions? Well, one of the reasons is when the negotiation was happening, the, the conservative, the right-wing position became, we're going to do nothing about the healthcare system and you're going to like it. So that dr- dragged the conversation further and further to the right. That's exactly what's happening now with the conversation on police, where you have left-wing activists saying, defund the police. And the response from virtually everybody is like, whoa, 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 I don't want to do that. That seems crazy. But am I in favor of reforming it, you know, and, and coming up with all these really good ideas to change the way the system works? Absolutely. And you even have Republicans saying that now. So, you know, again, I bring this up in every single segment where we talk about police brutality, but the campaign zero reforms, I think ultimately some of these need to be implemented. I prefer all of them be implemented, but I think there actually is a chance for the first time in my lifetime that we do get some of these ideas because now the debate is raging throughout the country and the Overton window is shifting left. It almost seems unavoidable in some ways. And broken windows policing, community oversight, limit the use of force, independently investigate and prosecute um, the bad cops who commit crimes, community representation, body cameras that film the police and you can't turn them off the penalty of law. Uh, redo training towards de-escalation, end all for-profit policing, demilitarize the police to catch us up with the rest of the developed countries, have fair police union contracts, and then, of course, end the drug war. End the drug war, which is the fuel for the oppression of poor communities and communities of color. So I think that in trying to burn the defund the police idea, Fox News is actually showing the utility of it here because you see the Overton window moving in real time. You see it. Now, I will say this, though. There is a difference between activists pushing for it, which is dragging the Overton window left, which is good, and politicians pushing for it. Because, listen, it is unpopular, 16%. Because if it sounds extreme to somebody like me, 
it's going to sound even more extreme to your average run-of-the-mill voter out there. So if you're a politician and you're saying we should defund the police, that's really dumb. <laughs> like, that is political suicide type dumb. If it polls at 16%, now I guess somebody can make an argument that, no, 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 I believe it as a principled thing. But which thing do you believe as a principled stance? Because, like I said, there's disagreement as to what defund the police even means. You talk to people who are, like, you know, like communists or anarchists, and they'll be like, no, I mean literally defund the police. I don't want any police. <laughs> but then you talk to people who are not maybe that far left. They'll say, well, well, by defund the police, what I really mean is change the culture of it and make it so that it's more of a community first responders brigade that shows up as opposed to guys with guns. And so... You know, like, like they're doing in Minneapolis, disband the police force and, you know, redo it with this first responders, community first responders thing where they're really looking to help people before they're looking to maybe jump to violence and have mental health counselors show up and stuff. Like, yeah, there's, there's disagreement as to what it means. But my point is, activists arguing for it is having unintended upsides of shifting the conversation left and making everybody for reforms. But politicians doing it is political suicide. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise, man. The numbers don't lie. 16% of the public supports defunding police. And if you're one of the people who would pretend like it doesn't sound extreme, I think you're beyond ridiculous because you know in your heart of hearts it sounds extreme. Of course it sounds extreme. But it's almost like when you talk about the, the right-wing version of this is war on terror. And what did everybody on the left say when, when the right said, oh, we're going to do a war on terror? The left-wing response was like, what do you mean? Terrorism is a tactic. You can't wage war on a tactic. That makes no sense. So by the same token, when you say defund the police, it sounds like you're waging war on the entire concept of policing. And to police just means to enforce the existing rules and regulations. So if you say defund the police, it sounds like you're against policing, which sounds like you're against enforcing rules and regulations, which sounds like you're not for any rules or regulations, which is chaos and mayhem and anarchy, and I don't mean that in a positive way at all. I mean that in a terrible way. So don't, like, one of the things that has annoyed me is I have seen many people on my Twitter timeline, because of course I'm in these lefty bubbles, and there's this thing that happens where it's like, all right, here's the new, here's the new you know, left-wing thing, defund the police. And then it's like almost overnight it becomes like if you don't get it and you don't agree with it and you're not advocating for it, then you're immediately like with the bad people and you're an idiot for not understanding it up front. Like there's a lot of smug, callous, like you either get it or you don't. And if you don't get it, well, you're with, you, you know, you're with the bad guys and, you know, you're, you're useless. It's almost like they expect you to understand it and get it and just accept it overnight as if it's as, you know, common sense a thing at face value as, like, Medicare for all is. And it's like, no, I'm sorry, it's just not. That's not what that is at all, which is why Medicare for all polls at, like, 60%, and this polls at 16%. That goes to show you it's not politically potent when it comes to messaging. Again, in terms of the utility of it, when activists push for it, it's dragging that over to the windows of the left, which is a good thing. But politicians pushing for it is political suicide, and people who don't see that, you're choosing not to see that. You're choosing not to see that. Typically in politics, you're supposed to go where the people are. You're not supposed to say, I'm going to say this thing that nobody agrees with <laughs> and then hope that it works out. That's usually not the way that this stuff works. So I, I do think that that's an important distinction, what the activists are calling for and the utility of it 
versus what a politician would say or do. I think if a politician calls for defunding the police and really, you know, really draws a line in the sand on that, good luckville on the next on your next race because you're gonna. It's so easy to go after and smear and caricature. And again, by the way, there really is disagreement as to what exactly that means. You talk to somebody really far left, they'll say, yeah, get rid of the police. You talk to somebody not as far left, they'll say, no, by defund the police, we just mean totally rework the way we do police. And, you know, like I said, have a community first responders brigade or something that's mental health counselors and this and that to help. So anyway, I'm babbling on now. But there's utility in the slogan for activists because it's dragging the conversation to the left, which moves the Overton window, makes it much more likely we're going to get real reform. So the job of the activist in many ways is almost to be unreasonable. But for politicians, you got to understand you're not an activist. And if you believe in or fight for or draw a line in the sand on defund the police, you have like the worst political instincts on the planet. And I think that's obvious, but I know many people will disagree with me. All right, next. Tucker Carlson has an amazing conspiracy theory about the left and the police that I want to share with you. Um, I don't know how he comes up with this stuff, but I, I got great amusement out of this. whatsoever to what they're telling you. Think about it for just a second. Democratic politicians control the police departments of virtually every big city in this country. Now they're telling you they want to get rid of those police departments. If they did, that would mean less power for themselves. So right away you know there's lying going on. Democrats do not relinquish power voluntarily, ever, period. Republicans frequently do. Democrats never do. So that's the first thing to know. Something obviously is going on here beneath the surface. This has to be an attempt to increase the power of the Democratic Party because every policy they push is, always. And in fact, that's exactly what's happening here. Democrats have no intention of abolishing the police. Listen carefully and you will hear them admit that. Instead, they want to replace the police. Take the people who currently have badges, many of whom, by the way, voted for Donald Trump, and swap them out for new people, people who hate Donald Trump and hate the people who voted for Donald Trump. That's what's actually happening here. And it makes sense. Law enforcement is one of the very few institutions remaining in this country that the left does not yet control. Democrats hate the police because they don't control the police. Very simple. Remember 35 years ago when Democrats were constantly attacking the U.S. military? We don't hear that anymore. Why is that? It's very simple. The left took over the Pentagon. No reason to attack people you control, which they do. And they plan to do the same thing to your local police department. Let's be clear. What Democrats are proposing isn't some form of radical libertarianism where the cops leave and citizens police their own neighborhoods. No, it's the opposite of that. What they're proposing is a power grab. Defund the police is a move toward authoritarian social control cloaked in the language of identity politics. I... I don't even know where to begin with that. First of all, these guys can't make up their mind. Is the left nothing but a bunch of weak, loser, soy boy idiots who are totally ineffectual 
and are like frail, is that what the left is? Or is the left this totally menacing, ever-present force which secretly controls everything in society? Because that'll change on a day-by-day basis. If Tucker's in in one mood, he'll go out there and do a rant that, you know, effectively says that all these left-wing politicians are loser, ineffectual soy boys who are frail and useless. Or, like, in this rant, he's trying to say that the left is this menacing force that secretly controls everything in society. So right up front, you got that deep contradiction, which and that'll change day-to-day for Tucker, depending on what's most convenient to the topic of the day and, and what suits his argument the most. But, I mean... The thing that's amazing, so let's walk through the argument. First, he says, well, Democrats control the police, so they don't actually want to defund the police. Well, he's correct that they don't want to defund the police. We'll get back to that. But he says they control the police, and then later on he admits, no, 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 they don't control the police, which is why Democrats are against the police, because they want to control the police, but they don't right now, because many police voted for Donald Trump. Listen, I got news for you, Tucker. This is as simple as it gets with the Democratic politicians. They don't really have any thoughts, beliefs, deeply held convictions on the police. Yes, there are technically a lot of Democratic mayors, um, you know, in Democratic-run cities with these police forces that are acting a fool. But as we see in in New York City with Bill de Blasio, the police forces don't listen to the Democratic politicians. They hate them. They're their own little, like, you know, authoritarian brigades where they have their own little hierarchy and structure, and they really take orders from whoever is at the top of that pyramid in the police department. They're not listening. They disregard. They doxed Mayor de Blasio's daughter the other day. You think they're really listening to him? They're not listening to him at all, and they're the ones with the guns. So, you know, technically they're supposed to be under their control. They're not listening to them. Um... But he says, oh, what the Democrats want to do is not defund the police. They want to replace the police with people who hate Donald Trump. What are you talking about? Tucker, not everything on the left is viewed through the eyes of, like, you know, what burns Trump or what doesn't burn Trump. I got news for you. The further left you go on the political spectrum, the less they're talking about Trump. It's the normie Democrats who never shut up about Trump. The actual leftists think that Joe Biden is almost just as bad as Donald Trump is. Oh, let's replace the police force with people who don't like Donald Trump. What are you talking about? And then he argues, well, they want to basically make the police a partisan paramilitary force. And they want to do authoritarianism and social control. And they want to, like, enforce identity politics or something. The, crazy, the craziest thing about that argument is... What's happening is the exact opposite of what he's claiming is happening. So, in other words, there is right now, effectively, police forces in major cities that are, that are paramilitary forces, partisan paramilitary forces. But they're right-wing partisan paramilitary forces, and they're trying to quell left-wing movements. Now, yes, in some instances, they're going after the looters and the rioters, and we all agree looting and rioting is wrong. Fair enough. But there's a lot of cracking down, a lot of offensive violence going on against peaceful protesters who are just saying, let's stop killing black people. Let's stop the police from killing black people. So you have these largely left-wing protests and social unrest, and you have these right-wing paramilitary movements being unnecessarily violent and cracking down on these protests. So he's flipping reality exactly on its head. 
he's not giving a rant. He's not doing a rant saying, man, we really got to stop these, these police forces from acting like violent partisan paramilitary forces and cracking down on protesters simply because they disagree with their politics. That's not what he's saying. But that is what's happening. These like right-wing paramilitary partisan forces are out there trying to shut down all these left-wing movements. And what does he do? Flips it right on his head and says, the long-term goal of the Democrats, which we need to worry about, is that Democrats want to take over the police departments, fire everybody, bring in people who don't like Donald Trump, and then make it like a partisan left-wing paramilitary force that is authoritarian and enforces identity politics and social controls on right-wingers. The mental gymnastics that this guy does. And here's how you know. There's a little cherry on top which lets you know just how much all of this is totally made up and all in his own, own mind and not connected to reality at all. Did you hear what he said there? I think it was towards the end. He said, the left took over the Pentagon. Let me tell you something, Tucker. The left has about as much control in the Pentagon as Ron Paul-style libertarians have control in the Pentagon. So, in other words, we have none. Zip. Zilch. Dickie McGeezax. You know what the left-wing position is? The anti-imperialist position. The left-wing position is non-intervention in all these wars that we're in. How can anybody in their right mind say that the left took over the Pentagon? The left took over the Pentagon? Tucker himself loves to rant against neoconservatives. Obviously, they're the ones who are still in control at the Pentagon and still in control in the Trump administration. Instead of directing his anger against the people who are continuing these wars, he says the left took over the Pentagon. What are you? It, we would, it would be wonderful if the left took over the Pentagon because we wouldn't be in Iraq. We wouldn't be in Afghanistan. We wouldn't have a 432% increase in drone strikes like we have under Trump. We wouldn't be at the brink of war with Iran. We wouldn't be at the brink of war with Venezuela. What are you talking about, Tucker? See, now I'm going to get a little cynical on everybody. I think he knows he's full of it. He's smart enough to know that the left did not take over the Pentagon. He's smart enough to know that, you know, um, the left is not trying to make the police a left-wing paramilitary force. He's smart enough to know all that. He's just playing to his audience here. Literally the only claim that Democratic politicians are really making is like, okay, let's stop cops from killing a 1,000 Americans per year, and let's maybe do some reforms like demilitarization and independent prosecutors and end the drug war. Like, that's what left-wing politicians want. He's, he's concocting this insane conspiracy theory, which makes zero sense, and he ends up saying, the left took over the Pentagon. On what planet did the left take over the Pentagon? Jesus Christ, Tucker Carlson. You know, the conservative commentators are really struggling with what to do with this moment. Because the killing of George Floyd and the protests afterwards, like all the polling data is showing that people are like, oh, okay, racial justice issues just like leapfrogged a million other issues to the top of the list. A lot of people are concerned and now they see what's going on and they want to change what's happening with the police. And so in other words, it was so cut and dry in how wrong it was that now society is overwhelmingly going in that direction. So 
the right-wing commentators are struggling with how to manage this. And what Tucker did is he went full law and order and full conspiracy theory. And, um, you know, hey, man, credit to him for being creative, but not a single thing he said there has any resemblance to reality. And I think on some level even he knows he's full of it in this one. Okay, next. CNN pundit Chris Saliza did a segment where he talks about how maybe this time Senate Republicans will finally break with Donald Trump. Um, And he really reiterated one of the most annoying themes of the Trump era, which is this idea of the good Republican and the bad Republican. And Trump is the nefarious force dragging all the Republicans in a bad direction, but there's still hope that some of the Republicans will come out of this stronger and will dissent from Trump. Let's see his rant. Well, the reason for this sort of enter no evil, see no evil, speak no evil approach by the vast majority of Senate Republicans to the matter statement is, to put it plainly, political cowardice. Every single Republican senator and House member is intimately aware of what happened to then-Arizona Senator Jeff Flake when he spoke out in 2017 against Trump. Trump attacked him, claimed that he was not really a Republican. Now, sidebar on that, Flake had one of the most conservative voting records in the House and the Senate during his time there, almost at the tippity-top, and sidebar. Um, Flake's numbers did plummet forcing him to choose retirement over a near-certain primary loss fueled by his willingness to say that Trump was doing long-term damage to the Republican Party. Trump, as he does, celebrated Flake's retirement and took credit for it. He also suggested that if anyone else got out of line, any of you guys get out of line, they'd get the same treatment. And when Michigan Republican Congressman Justin Amash, who, like Flake, had a near-perfect conservative voting record in Congress, came out in favor of Trump's impeachment, the president savage tip, leading Amash to leave the Republican Party entirely. And so, with very limited exceptions, Murkowski, Amash, and Utah Senator Mitt Romney being the most prominent, almost no Republican senator or House member has dared step out of the Trump line. And that's not because they agree with the president. It's because they apparently value getting reelected, or at least not having to beat back a Trump-inspired primary challenge, more than they care about, in Murkowski's own words, the courage of our own convictions. After all, some of Trump's most vocal critics within the party when he was running for president in 2016 have, now, with no real explanation as to why, pivoted, hope, 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 into one of his most ardent defenders. I think he's a kook. I think he's crazy. I think he's unfit for office. Everything in Donald's world is about Donald. And he combines being a pathological liar. Donald Trump is a delusional narcissist and an orange-faced windbag, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul said of Donald Trump in 2016. What explains that transformation, if not pure political calculation? The answer is, well, you already know what the answer is. I, I just said it. It's pure political calculation. History very rarely looks that kindly on those who put personal political gain and personal ambition over doing what you know is right. At some point, 
whether next year or in early 2025, Donald Trump will no longer be president or the leader of the Republican Party. And on that day, and a lot of days after it, Republican elected officials will have to look back at the past four or eight years and ask themselves whether they stood on the courage of their convictions or the cravenness of their political aspirations. At the moment, that bit of introspection will likely leave a large majority of Republicans wishing they had taken a very different course. He's such an unsophisticated thinker. I mean, it really is incredible to watch him do these rants as if he's saying anything that's insightful. Um, So the whole underlying theme here is that, like, Trump is this unique Republican evil, and then there are these some good Republicans who say, "I, I cannot abide, sir, and so they break with Trump, and then the other ones are just, you know, craven political characters who are like, I must follow along with our leader because I want to continue to get reelected and because, you know, he's the head of the party. And that simplistic breakdown is so pathetic because it's effectively arguing that people like Jeff Flake, like, oh, he's, he's such a hero for, you know, dissenting against Trump and he deserves so much adoration. Now, here's the reality. People in the Republican Party who are dissenting from Trump. They're doing it not really for any kind of, you know, moral courage that they might have. They're doing it because, number one, they really disagree with the optics of Trump and his lack of decorum and civility and the fact that he's got, like, no filter and he's embarrassing and he tweets a lot. And so... They're not, they, they don't like the fact that he doesn't know how to keep up the BS show in Washington, okay? That's one of the reasons they're dissenting from him. And the other reason is, in the case of a guy like Jeff Flake, he knows damn well that there's this giant media industrial complex willing to support him. It's not brave when all of polite society is like, hey, come join us over here and we'll pretend you're a hero. He instantly, overnight, became a favorite of MSNBC and CNN. Look at guys like Bill Kristol, a neoconservative war criminal who now has been fully rehabilitated by establishment media types, who's the darling of CNN and MSNBC and the hashtag resistance. There's nothing brave about running into the arms of, you know, the biggest media apparatus in this country. Now, compare and contrast that. If you're a Republican who turns out to be anti-Trump, that's super lucrative. Compare that to the opposite. Compare that to a left-winger who dissents from Biden like myself. Are there giant CNN and MSNBC contracts waiting for me? Is there a giant book deal waiting for me for being somebody who's on the left, technically a registered Democrat, who's saying, I don't know, man, it'd be tough for me to vote for Biden. Is that lucrative? No, of course not. There's no incentives pushing me in that way. So it's just a matter of principle and conviction and ideology as to why I'm struggling with the idea of voting for somebody like Joe Biden. But for a guy like Jeff Flake and for all these Republicans who dissented from Trump, they know that they can run into the open arms of the hashtag resistance and the resistance will wipe away all of their former crimes, all of their, you know, the wars they voted for, their, you know, torture apologetics their right-wing economic views. He just said Jeff Flake had like 100% conservative voting record. Right, so why are you holding up as if he's some kind of hero? Aren't you against the conservative voting record as such? Turns out, no. 
Turns out, no. To guys like Chris Elizabeth, because he's a bird brain, it's all about optics. Oh, he stood up against Trump, so now I like him. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other thing is, the, one, the Republicans who do not break with Trump and stay with Trump, I would submit to Chris Elizabeth that he's half right. Because, yes, many of them are doing it cynically because they want to win re-election. Okay, so I will grant him that. He's half right on that front. But he's also half wrong. So what do I mean by that? Well, a guy like Lindsey Graham, who was one of the biggest, you know, critics of Trump in the Republican Party back when he was running for president and right when he dropped out and stuff. One of the reasons why he's now one of Trump's biggest supporters is actually not just political convenience and he wants to get reelected. It's also ideology. See, when Donald Trump was running, he was saying he's going to get us out of the wars. That's when Lindsey Graham was most aggressive against Trump. He was also acting like he was going to be a protectionist on economics. And Lindsey Graham does not agree with protectionism. He does not agree with ending wars. In fact, those are probably his two biggest issues. He believes in all these endless wars and American leadership, he would say. And he believes in, you know, the, the current economic status quo of free trade all around the world and all these jobs being outsourced. He thinks that's a lot better than so-called protectionism, which, you know, is honestly more of a left position. So those are his two biggest issues. Trump was acting like he was going to be a protectionist on economics, and he was acting like he was going to be um, against the wars and pull us out. Well, guess what? Trump as president is basically a standard Republican. We're still in the war in Iraq. We're still in the war in Afghanistan. He increased the drone strikes 432%. He's on the brink of war with Venezuela. He's on the brink of war with Iran. He pulled out of the deal and ripped up uh, the agreement. So he's standard neoconservative on foreign policy in terms of his actions, with one exception in North Korea. Okay, everywhere else he's a neocon. And then when it comes to economics, there are little areas here and there where he dissented from the orthodoxy and, you know, trying to do some sort of a standing up to China thing with protectionism on that front, but kind of back down a few times. But mostly, Trump's economic philosophy is really embodied with that 2017 GOP tax cut law, which is standard Republican orthodoxy, which is trickle-down economics, which is just like George W. Bush, and on top of that, deregulation, gutting the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So what happened with Lindsey Graham is not just, oh, I want to get reelected, so I'm going to go down that path to, of you know, being a sycophant to Trump. No. Also, what happened was Lindsey Graham realized, oh, the rhetoric on the campaign trail was just rhetoric. Trump actually agrees with me ideologically. He's a standard right-winger. He's a standard establishment Republican on most issues, so now I'm going to become one of his biggest defenders because I agree with that. So, in other words, he's painting all the ones who agree with Trump as like, oh, they're just, they're just doing it because they want to get reelected. No, a lot of the Republicans who are still in lockstep with Trump are also doing it, not just because they want to get reelected, although that's a big part of it. They also agree with his standard establishment Republican politics. Why is that so hard to grasp? A guy like Mitt Romney, funny enough, who he would say is a hero, the only reason why Mitt Romney is dissenting from Trump is because Trump made a fool of him when he made him try out to become Secretary of State, and then he didn't give him Secretary of State. And there's that hilarious picture of them at a dinner with Trump making an evil face and Mitt Romney making a puppy dog face like, what am I doing? I'm degrading myself. So Mitt Romney standing up to Donald Trump, I think that has more to do, nothing with ideology at all. That has to do with, you know, Mitt Romney 
feeling personally slighted, so he's standing up to Trump. So it's funny because my main point here is, guys, generally speaking, when you look at the Republicans who are following along with Trump, and when you look at the Republicans who are dissenting from Trump, there are no heroes. None of them are heroes. None of them are heroes. There's a little bit of ideology mixed in as to why they're doing what they're doing, but mostly they're all, you know, looking for the path of least resistance and looking to get the most pats on the back and looking for the most adulation and, and you know, doing what they view best for their careers. So it, this myth of, like, you've have, you got have the Trump Republicans and the good Republicans, I need that to die. Because you have a guy like George W. Bush who stood up to Trump a bunch of times, but George W. Bush is a goddamn war criminal torturer. So don't, like, they want to rehabilitate everybody who's a Republican who doesn't, like, fall in line with Trump. And that just shows you how much of a bird brain he is. That he's not, he's not analyzing this in terms of ideology or substantively. He's doing it like a high schooler. Like, he's a high school nerd looking at what's happening with the popular kids, and he's trying to describe the dynamic. And it's like, you just have no clue what the hell you're talking about. And that's obvious. Okay, I'm going to take a break. When I come back, um, we're going to talk about Fox Business hosts going after Democrats for the riots, and um, a Republican congressman went on Fox Business Network, and the issues he decided to focus on with his colleagues show you just how out of touch they are. So stay right there. We'll be right back with that and much, much, much more.
Alright, y'all. I'm back. I am back. I am back. I am back. Okay, so... Still got quite a bit to discuss. Uh, We're going to go to my favorite... One of my favorite commentators on TV... Stuart Varney. He's got a hot take for us. Um, There it is. Okay. Fox Business host Stuart Varney, one of the most pompous men in the country and one of my favorite commentators on TV. Um, He knows exactly who to blame for the protests and uh, the riots that happened across this country. It's not the officer who killed George Floyd. It's not the politicians who looted the treasury for Wall Street and big corporations and gave crumbs to regular people. It's just your run-of-the-mill Democrats. Watch this. Why is it that the worst effects of the lockdown and the worst rioting took place in citizen states that have been run largely by Democrats. I think it's time for some serious questioning of liberal politics. Let's face it, for a generation, very few Republicans could get elected in California, New York, Illinois, and those that were, were hardly supporters of Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump policies. I can't remember a pro-business elected official in any of those blue states. The employer was always the bad guy. Profit always looked down on. If you're successful, you're just the winner of life's lottery. As Senator Warren famously said, you didn't build that. It was always all government all the time. It's always about victims. This is why so many Democrat-run places are broke. Illinois, New Jersey, crippled by government worker pension obligations. Years ago, Democrats pandered to municipal workers so they could get elected. In New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio pandered to anti-police sentiment to get elected. Look how that turned out. Now they want red states to bail them out. This is why successful people are leaving blue states in droves. They get no respect. All they get is disdain and higher taxes. They take their money and their talent elsewhere. So when crisis strikes, these states flounder. Lockdowns stay in place much longer than in red states. They don't care about business. They don't care about the economy. They think they'll get votes by hating Trump. And when riots strike, same story. Instead of restoring order and saving downtowns, they blame the president and watch businesses burn. I'm not predicting big change, but when decades of liberal policies fail so obviously, perhaps the people of New York, California, Illinois, Connecticut, New Jersey, and others may start to take another look at what brought them to such dire straits. So he's looking at all the problems around the country, and his takeaway is, oh, well, this is obviously just because of liberal policies. Now, just so everybody understands, when he says liberal, he means anything left of center, anything. Your standard run-of-the-mill Democratic politician all the way to, you know, Bernie Sanders and his followers, all the way to the activists in the street. To him, anything left of center is liberal. So his takeaway is, 
all these problems, it's the result of liberal policies. He says that, well, cities run by Democrats, they've had the worst unrest. I rest my case. Virtually every city is run by Democrats. <laughs> like, that's the nature usually as a general rule. Obviously, there, there are exceptions to this rule. But as a general rule, big cities have, you know, Democratic leaders and then more um, I, oh, you're going to make fun of me for how I say this word. I know I don't know how to say it. I've tried to fix it. I can't. Rural, rural, <laughs> rural. I don't know how to say it. But those places, as a general rule, have more uh, conservative leadership. So it's more of, you know, that's the divide. That's the breakdown in the country more than anything else. And you could see it on the election map, too, for big elections, for the presidential race. Usually the big cities go to Democrats and everything that's not a big city goes to Republicans. So when he says, well, the big cities run by Democrats, they had the, you know, the worst uh, unrest. Yeah, but every city is run by Democrats. So, and you're not going to have an uprising or as big of an uprising in areas where there's not as many people because there's not as many people. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so that makes no sense. And argument is if we just did right-wing solutions like Ronald Reagan then everything, you know, we wouldn't even have this civil unrest. To which I respond to him, the dominant philosophy in the country at the federal level for such a long time has been right-wing. Whether you go all the way back to Ronald Reagan, and he started the era of, the era of big government is over, every president post-Ronald Reagan has believed in and exacerbated the neoliberal world order. So there's been this belief in markets. And this belief that government is not equipped to handle even the most basic things. And so whether it's Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton or George W. Bush or Barack Obama or uh, Donald Trump, they all believed in that ideology. And out of that came what we are seeing now. So obviously the spark that got everybody in the streets was George Floyd and police brutality. By the way, I don't think police brutality is necessarily a left-wing idea. So that's what got people out there, and police brutality is probably the driving force keeping people out there. But at the same time, as many others have pointed out, this is, there's also just a lot of pain and despair and degradation and poverty and misery. So that's also fueling this. The fact that people can't pay their rent, the fact that people can't pay their mortgage, the fact that you know, 20 million more people just lost their health care during a, a pandemic of all times. We have this right-wing status quo, and that's largely what led to a lot of this. And he turns around and goes, if only we had right-wing solutions, everything would be okay. <laughs> what? So, you know, listen, imagine we lived in a world where we got – nationalized wages like Germany did. Germany's unemployment rate is 3.9%. Ours is like 15% at least now, okay, the official one. Um, so the real one's over 20. So if we did that, that's a left-wing idea. There wouldn't be as much social unrest. If we did universal basic income, left-wing idea, or you could say that's a cross-partisan idea, but if you did that, there wouldn't be as much social unrest. If you had universal health care, there wouldn't be as much social unrest. If you reform the police department so that they're not wantonly killing a thousand people a year, there wouldn't be social unrest. 
So it's hilarious because he wants more right-wing solutions when obviously if you, had, if you had a society that was more fair, more just, more equal, less, less vicious, more left-wing policies, then I doubt we'd be in this position that we're in. But he's a one-trick pony, this guy, Stuart Barney. He's got, he's got nothing to say except what you just saw. Everything ever is the fault of Democrats and liberals. He really just means anything left of center when he says that. Um, and everything that's great is to the right. And he thinks like this is some, you know, he's some sort of genius for having standard Republican views. Um, and then I guess the final point I'll make here is he brings up red states bailing out the blue states. To which I respond that nothing could be further from the truth, as I'm sure all of you guys know. Blue states are more net tax payers to the federal government. Red states are more net tax receivers. So he flips the dynamic as if, like, oh, the blue states want to bail out from the red states. Actually, no, the blue states have been bailing out the red states as a matter of standard operating procedure for decades. So now, by the way, that's not me saying we shouldn't do that because, you know, I believe in the United States of America, and I think whichever states need the help should get it. I don't care if they're right-wing, left-wing, that doesn't bother me at all. So, but the fact of the matter is he flips the dynamic exactly on its head, which is basically his show in a nutshell. Let me get everything wrong, be aggressively and arrogantly wrong, and mislead my audience every single day. There's a Republican congressman who went on Fox Business Network, and I want you to take a look at the issue that he decided to focus on along with uh, his colleagues. So this is what the Republicans in Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives, this is what they're talking about. This is what they're focusing on in the midst of massive social unrest, in the midst of police brutality and a pandemic and an economic depression. Watch this. Welcome back. You're watching the Fox Business Network, a major geopolitical fight now escalating. The Trump administration now moving to expand a push to stop oil and fuel trade between Iran and Venezuela, now possibly getting ready even more sanctions and more pressure, this time against dozens of companies who own and run those tankers. Let's welcome Republican Mark Green of Homeland Security. Great to have you on again, sir. This is ratcheting up. Your reaction? Yeah, I think anything we can do to put pressure on the Maduro regime is a good thing for the people of Venezuela. It's the fastest way for them to get to freedom, and that means the relationship with Iran and Venezuela that's now sort of blossomed through the past several months. If we can put pressure on the transfer of oil from Iran to, uh, to Venezuela, it's a win-win. So what is the plan, though? What is the Trump administration plan? What is the Republicans' plan? Because five Iranian oil tankers arrived in Venezuela last week. Venezuela is facing severe fuel shortages, but they had no signs of any U.S. military interference to stop them. We've had General Jack Keenan saying we should have blockaded Venezuela. Um, you know, there are threats in the U.S. over the shipments, but nothing more than that right now. What's the plan? Well, it sounds like they're going to put sanctions on those tankers and try to stop from an economic standpoint, at least at this point, 
Uh, we've not been told in Congress that there are plans to use force or to, to use any kind of a blockade, but certainly we uh, were open if the president comes to us with that proposal. Why? So should there be a blockade of Venezuela? Again, I think what we've got to do is put maximum pressure on Venezuela. So everything that we can do to put Maduro in a crisis so that we can get to the freedom, you know, basically freedom for people and get him uh, out of office is a good thing. So, yes. Okay. Uh, so you support that. So, I mean, so because we know that Washington has warned governments, seaports, and shippers and insurance they could face sanctions. We, we reported yesterday uh, that Republicans are moving to release the new push for historic sanctions against Iran. It's like we live in a bad movie. It's like we live in a bad movie. I just said it. We have COVID-19, a pandemic that we haven't seen in our lifetimes. We have massive social unrest, just like the tumultuous 1960s and the civil rights movement. We have police brutality, which sparked that. And we have effectively an economic depression with real unemployment over 20%. And this is what the Republicans are focusing on in Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives. This is what they're focusing on. So here's what's happening, to put it in perspective for everybody. Iran and Venezuela are both pariah states, and the United States has been cracking down on them. We've been sanctioning them up to their eyeballs. So as a result of that, they're looking for an escape hatch, okay? So they're starting to work with each other because nobody else around the world is going to work with them because we've sanctioned them to the high heaven. So now they're working with each other. They're trading and whatnot. And we look at that, the fact that these two pariah states who we've been cracking down on are finding a little loophole and working with each other, and we go, we cannot let that stand. So we're trying to block trade between those two countries. By the way, I'm pretty sure that's in contravention of international law because we're not supposed to have any you know, sway over what they're doing. They're supposed to be sovereign nations. So what are we going to do? We're going to act like pirates on the seas and just stop shipments of stuff from going from one place to the other? What are we talking about here? And so the whole point is stop trade between the two of them because let's continue to starve the population, sanction them, effectively have embargoes, and then ultimately what we're hoping is this will piss off the populations enough where it leads to uprisings, and then you have regime change in the two respective countries. Now, the real thing that will happen as a result of this is the civilian populations will be absolutely obliterated and destroyed, and anti-American sentiment will rise because people are not dumb, and they're going to listen to their leaders in Venezuela and Iran, respectively, when they turn around and say, we're trying to do the best we can for you, but the goddamn Americans are blocking us from even trading with, with each other. We're sanctioned up to our eyeballs. If you want to be mad at anybody, be mad at the Americans for sanctioning us. All they have to do is lift the sanctions and the civilian population would be much better off. Much better off. So this is all, guys, this is all during what I just told you, COVID-19, social unrest, police brutality, and economic depression. They're wasting time and energy on this. By the way, putting aside the fact that we shouldn't be thinking about this, talking about this in any way, shape, or form, it's also wrong as such. The fact that the United States is acting like an international rogue and pirates on the seas and stopping trade between two sovereign countries 
Because what we want to do, effectively, again, is regime change in these two countries. We want to topple the Iranian government. We want to topple the Venezuelan government. We want to have U.S. business-friendly governments in place. And that is, that's higher on the list of the things they want to do than making sure you can pay your rent or your mortgage. We got 20 million Americans who just lost their health care. We already had 28 million that didn't have it. Now we have 20 more million on top of that that just lost it because of the economic depression and because our system's a mess. And instead of addressing that, instead of doing UBI, instead of helping you out, they're trying to figure out what else they could do to mess with Venezuela and Iran. This is like an empire in decline, not even happening in slow motion anymore. This is like fast. Look at how misplaced their priorities are. Look at how detached they are from the rest of the population. As if anybody, whether they're on the left or the right, is sitting at home and going, you know, they really should do something about Maduro and the Ayatollah. No, people are sitting around going, oh my God, I have no job. I have no health care. I'm going to get evicted. What the hell is going on? The empire can't stop itself. Isn't it something? They couldn't get their rear in gear when it came to protecting the population from a pandemic. They couldn't get their rear in gear when it came to giving you material well-being in the form of a UBI check or nationalizing payroll like other developed countries. They couldn't do that. We don't know what to do. Oh, my God, this is so bad. But they could get their rear in gear when it came to trying to topple Venezuela and Iran. Immediately they start, oh, let's, let's pass this law. Let's do that. Let's get more involved. Even... Even with the Fed, trillion dollars a day in liquidity into the stock market to prop it up and fully implement corporate socialism. Five trillion dollar bailout from Congress for corporations. Always, immediately, oh my God, let's, let's help Wall Street. Let's do more war. Immediately. For you, crickets. Crickets. As Martin Luther King said, it's socialism for the rich and rugged individualism and capitalism for you. And I've never seen a clearer example of it, except now, add into the mix. When it comes to toppling governments, they also get all the attention and all the help uh, that one could ever imagine. And the people are just left behind. All right, next. Oh, boy. Here we go. So this next story is uh, honestly one of the saddest of all time. Trump campaign demands that CNN apologize for a poll that shows Biden leading. So this CNN poll has Biden up 14 points nationally. I believe it's from SSRS Research, which is a, you know an organization that many outlets have used previously. Um, now, This poll has Biden up 14. Is that the most that Biden is up in any poll? Yes, it is. But there are plenty of other polls with Biden up 10, Biden up 8. You know, I'm not sure there's a single one that has him up less than 6 at the moment. So Trump tweeted the other day saying uh, the fake news media and their fake polls were finally taking action. And he hired McLaughlin and Associates to analyze 
this CNN poll. Now, understand that McLaughlin and Associates, I know they sound official, but they're a standard right-wing polling outlet, kind of like Rasmussen, I would say. And um, they have one of the worst track records. Just like Rasmussen is one of the least accurate, um, you know, McLaughlin is, is also a pretty inaccurate uh, organization. They go through it, the right-wing polling outlet. And I, listen, I honestly think this is kind of like Trump's doctor's note. Remember when he had a doctor's note and it was clear that he wrote it? He's in the best shape of any president of all time. <laughs> like, that's what Trump's doctor's note said. So I, he wrote it and pretended like, yeah, it's for my doctor. I honestly think this is the same thing with the McLaughlin and Associates thing, where, you know, it says McLaughlin and Associates on the top, but you read through it and it sounds like Trump saying, like, the fake news poll from CNN is so totally fake. <laughs> so... So I was reading through it. I'm like, okay, this is this is definitely from Trump and not from McLaughlin and Associates, even though they probably gave him the green light. Like, yeah, sure, whatever, we'll analyze the poll. And So stop and think about this for a second. He's demanding a retraction and apology for a CNN poll that has Biden up 14. He says it's fake. Like I just told you, this poll has Biden up 14. There's other polls that have him up 10, and Trump is not asking for a retraction on that poll. So... If he thinks the 14 one is so off, okay, well, the 10 one, you think the 10 one is on? And if you're down 10 points, why are you going to bitch and moan about four points more? Because, by the way, usually the, the margin of error is 3.5 in, like, either way. So that makes no sense. But I think more importantly, guys, even if you think it's fake, the fact that they're running fake polls that have Biden up more, that would depress turnout for Democrats. So wouldn't you want to cheerlead this on, Don? Like, there's no, there's no logic on this. There's no logic. That was the same thing that happened in 2016, when you had the, like, Huffington Post poll tracker that had Hillary with, like, a 99% chance of victory, you know? You had... Um, she was up in virtually every national poll. Now, to be fair, it was only two percentage points to four percentage points, usually about. But it gave this false sense of security, which could have maybe depressed turnout a little bit and kept some people home who would have otherwise voted. So by the same token, you have a poll that shows Biden up by that much. If you're Trump and you want it to help you, wouldn't you be like, yeah, yeah, release another one. Have him up 27 points, because then the people who would vote for Biden are more likely to say, hey, he's going to win anyway, I'm going to stay home. So it makes, for him to complain about this makes no sense. If anything, it would help you if it's fake, like you're saying. If it's fake and it's showing Biden up more than he is up, that would help you. What are you doing? Oh, my God, but see, guys, it's all about the ego. There's no logic. There's nothing going on into this other than he's triggered at the fact that he's down a lot to Sleepy Joe. But, guys, I just, I just went on the Hill the other day, yesterday, and we were talking about this and how Biden has taken now a pretty big lead, much bigger than what Hillary had. And one of the things I said was Trump is coming across as desperate and flailing and anxious. You read his Twitter feed, it's just he's throwing everything against the wall to go after Biden. But the thing is, it's incoherent. There's no, like with Hillary, it was the same theme over and over. Crooked Hillary, she's corrupt, she takes money from Wall Street, she did NAFTA, you know, all these things 
that are substantive, that are like, that paint a picture of she's the status quo, I'm the outsider. She's the status quo, I'm the outsider. Which is why I said in 2016, Trump has a very good chance of winning. But now, he doesn't know what he's doing against Biden. Guys, he just did, he tried to say that Biden is in favor of defunding the police the other day on Twitter, the same day that Biden wrote an op-ed that was like, no, I don't want to defund the police. He's trying to, uh, he's, Sleepy Joe is a, is a lackey of the far left. He's going to defund the police. Oh, my God, I'm for law and order. <laughs> Nobody reads that and goes, yeah, that's what, that's what Biden's going to do. He's going to defund the police. The guy who wrote the freaking crime bill? So you have to have a narrative that's rational. You have to have something that makes sense, but this makes no sense. By the same token, even if you think this poll is off and it's fake and it's wrong, you should cheer it on because it'll help you if they overestimate how well he's doing. His ego is just obliterating him, man. He can't see straight. It's everything is just triggered. It's about his feelings. It's like, oh my God, no, hold down so much. The sleepy Joe can't be. No, no, this is a fake news post. So fake. <laughs> Come on, man. Oh my God. This is so sad. It's the saddest thing I've ever seen. Um, and all the things going on in the country right now, I mean, Jesus, we have COVID-19, we have civil unrest that we've never seen since like the 1960s, it's that tumultuous out there, the police brutality, the economic depression, all this stuff is going on, and you're focusing on the fact that you don't like a poll from CNN? To the point where you reach out to McLaughlin and get them, you write the letter pretending you're them, or they write the letter saying this is a fake news poll. In times of national crisis, people seem to want a steady hand of leadership. Trump is anything but that. He's a populist bomb thrower. It worked in 2016. That is not the mood of the country right now. And the numbers really do reflect that. At this point in time, and it's, it can change, just so everybody understands. But at this point in time, Biden is a giant favorite. All right, next. Top Democratic official and former governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, was on a Zoom call, Zoom meeting, I should say, with other Democrats, and he admitted something interesting about Biden's strategy. People say all the time, oh, we got to get the vice president out of the basement. He's fine in the basement. <laughs> two people see him a day, his two body people, that's that. And let Trump keep doing what Trump's doing. It's hard for the vice president to break through. You've got the COVID crisis. He's not a governor, doesn't have a National Guard, he's not the president, doesn't have a briefing room. He needs to come out strategically when he says something like he did on race relations two days ago. He needs to have a big impact, thoughtful, and that's what we're preferring that he actually do at the time. He's doing a lot of local. He's talking to two, three governors a day. He's doing roundtables, Zoom calls. He's doing with local officials. And a lot of it's being done in those six battleground states that we have uh, going forward. I told you guys, I told you guys, I was the first one to go out there and say, if I was Biden, I would just hide. If I was his team, I would hide him. And that's his best strategy moving forward. Why? He has trouble talking. 
he's definitely in cognitive decline. There's no doubt about that. And also, you know, he kind of has a little bit of the Hillary syndrome going on. Hillary syndrome is the more you're in front of people, the less they like you. The more you're away, the more they like you. So that's what happened when she was, before she hopped into the race in 2016, people remember this, she had high approval ratings. So then when she started talking and she went out there, it dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. And then Bernie got out there and the more Bernie talked, the more people liked him. So Biden's got a little bit of that going on. It's not as bad as Hillary. There's a more visceral thing with Hillary where people are just like, I just don't like her at all. With Biden, he's got a little bit more of the affable Uncle Joe thing. Um, so it's not as bad as Hillary with the more people see him, the less they like him. But when you're in cognitive decline and he can't talk, yeah, of course you should hide him. Duh. Beyond that, look at the state of the country, man. You have COVID-19. You have civil unrest. You have the police brutality. You have an economic depression. Speaks for itself. And then you have a guy who very clearly doesn't know how to deal with it. And he's like, not a steady hand of leadership at all. So, you know, this really is a situation. It developed very quickly into a situation where it's kind of like the 2008 election where the country hated George Bush. He had like a 20-something percent approval rating by the time he left office. And any Democrat could have won that election. And Obama did, not taking away from his skills as a campaigner, but really any Democrat could have won that election. Trump is in so much trouble right now, I genuinely believe if it was Mayor Pete versus Trump, Mayor Pete would be winning. If it was Amy Klobuchar versus Trump, Amy Klobuchar would be winning. If it was Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, any of them, because you're now becoming the default option. Usually an incumbent president is the default option. And if you go back to before COVID, Trump was the default option. And it was the uphill climb for the Democrat. But after all these things now piling on top of each other, the timing for Trump with his election is just abysmal. And all he has to do is hide. So anyway, yet again, I was on to something. And earlier than everybody else, when I first said it, everybody was making fun of me. But now it appears like my strategy for Biden of hide is conventional wisdom. And here's the point, guys. The fact that top Democrats now know this, that really is bad news for Trump. That's such bad news for Trump. All on him now. It's all on him. You're just giving him enough rope and he's going to hang himself. He's already hanging himself. So they figured it out. And just so everybody understands, the best predictor of future action is past action. And Biden hid in the primary and won. And that was against a much more formidable candidate in Bernie Sanders. Now against Trump, who's all over the place, and his appro- there's a poll that just came out. His approval rating is 38% right now. Biden is up on average about 10 points in the national polls, leading in every single swing state except maybe one. So they finally caught on. The Democrats finally caught on. Now, by the way, just so everybody understands, I'm not, I'm not celebrating this fact, saying that this is the dynamic. Because obviously, I think Noam Chomsky is correct when he talks about the two-party system. And he basically says, like, any dictatorship around the world would envy the U.S. political system. Why? Because you have two parties. They both represent the same interests. It's two wings of the business party. And you just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, where all you need is one to be so bad that people go, I got to go in the other one, other direction. 
got to go the other way. And if that one's so bad, people go, i got to go the other way. So in other words, you set up a situation where the, the dissenting move is to just go right back to the status quo in the other direction. So that's why any dictator would be jealous of this system, because you're just picking between the Democratic dictator and the Republican dictator. The status quo held up by a Republican or the status quo held up by the Democrat? Corporatism from the right or corporatism from the left? Imperialism from the right or imperialism from the left? And it's just, it's all, they're all part of the same elite ruling class. So I'm not celebrating this notion and this idea that Biden doesn't even have to do anything to win this election. I'm just telling you, that's the dynamic. That's what's happening. I mean, I wish we lived in a system where we had more viable options. I wish we didn't have a two-party system. If we had ranked choice voting, I do think the vote share for either the Libertarian Party or the Green Party would immediately shoot up massively, and they'd get over 5% in these elections for sure, and then you have a long-term goal you could build out on that. But unfortunately, the way the system works now with this, the two-party duopoly, as it's called, this is what we see. You want the piece of trash from the right or the piece of trash from the left? You want the Republican or the Democrat? So, you know, it's a damn shame, but this is unfortunately where we're stuck at the moment. And his, Biden's prospects have never looked better, and it's not because of anything he said or did. All right, next. Donald Trump and Bill Barr and the Republican Party, they've been harping away on the threat of Antifa. So let's see how big of a threat they really are. This is from NPR, and it's a fascinating breakdown. U.S. Attorney General William Barr has repeatedly blamed anti-fascist activists for the violence that has erupted during demonstrations over George Floyd's death. But federal court records show no sign of so-called Antifa links so far in cases brought by the Justice Department. NPR has reviewed court documents of 51 individuals facing federal charges in connection with the unrest. As of Tuesday morning, none is alleged to have links to the Antifa movement. Of the cases brought so far, 20 involve allegations related to arson. 16 involve the illegal possession of a firearm, uh, more, more often than not by a felon. Another eight people face charges related to inciting a riot or civil disorder. The single instance in which an extremist group is mentioned in court documents is a case against three Nevada men. Federal prosecutors allege the trio belong to the right-wing Boogaloo movement that wants to bring about a civil war. The men have been charged with plotting violence during the Las Vegas protests. Zero, zero Antifa. And these are the people who are facing charges for turning the otherwise peaceful protests violent. 
making them riots or looting. Zero Antifa. Zero. Zero. I think it was Ken Klippenstein who tweeted it. He said the threat of Antifa terrorism is about as real as the threat of Saddam's WMDs. Zero. Zero. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it, man. Zero. So in other words, it turns out that these protests, by and large, sparked by the death of George Floyd, there are people who want to end the police brutality. They're out there. And then, yes, there are some people who went out there who are just looking for violence and looking to take advantage of a terrible situation, people who are looters and rioters. But the idea that it's some sort of highly organized left-wing movement that's, that's infiltrating every corner of society and trying to lead a Marxist revolution, I'm sure if you talk to many you know, Marxists, they'll tell you, I wish that was the case. But as you guys know, and as I know, because I'm on the left and I've been involved in a lot of movements, we're a hell of a lot more disorganized than anybody would like to admit. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, nothing but love and respect for, for Bernie Sanders, but look at how that campaign crashed and burned. The lack of organization, the lack of leadership, the kind of scatterbrain default mindset of lefties, is actually a real impediment to getting change. Whereas on the right, even though you could argue I think they're ideologically crazy, they actually believe in organization and leadership and hierarchy and even like authoritarianism and disciplinarianism in a way that the left does not. When you have a movement that's based on like equality and democracy, then you tend to not want anybody to kind of rise up and be a leader, which is why Antifa, one of the reasons why, they're totally decentralized. You know, as Jimmy Dore said, where can I get my Antifa card? Where can I go to a meeting? Where can I pay my dues? The answer is nowhere. So now, by the way, I'm not saying Antifa doesn't exist. Of course they exist. Everybody knows they exist. But they're a very decentralized, you know, thing. No organization, no structure, no hierarchy, no membership card, no meeting. It's just like when you see a situation where you have the Proud Boys or you have some white supremacist group or something, you know, come out in droves, usually in those situations, that's when Antifa shows up and, you know, does what they do. Now, there is disagreement among the ranks of Antifa and people who call themselves Antifa. You know, some believe in violence, as in property violence. Others do not. But... Again, the idea that there's some sort of large, highly organized, adaptable, amorphous threat is just the right-wing caricature of Antifa. And again, I think you'll, you could talk to many people in Antifa who would tell you, I wish we were highly organized, I wish we were amorphous, I wish we were adaptable, and I wish we were as big of a threat as they think we are. Um, so, yeah, it's just... It's the convenient scapegoat. If you say, if you look at these protests and then you look at the riots and you look at the looting, if you say, if you could pin that all on just Antifa, well then it becomes the boogeyman that you can use to justify more police crackdowns or using the Insurrection Act or more funding and more militarization of police. They could use that as a convenient excuse 
to kind of double down on the status quo and authoritarianism and the police state. And it's a way to also scare your average run-of-the-mill Trump-supporting Republican into being more involved and more supportive of the right. It's just, it's a, it's a unifying call on the right to act like Antifa is this super organized, highly adaptable, efficient threat. And I'm sorry, man, but they're really just not. I I saw a tweet earlier, Ben Burgess retweeted it, and it it was somebody describing what was happening in one of the movements, one of the protest movements. They, like, took over a city hall or something, and one person grabbed the mic and was talking about how they're gender fluid, and then somebody else grabbed it and, you know, was talking about something involving race, and then somebody screamed, like, how dare you take away the mic from a black person in a Black Lives Matter protest, and then, so it was like, it was literally like a stereotype, a caricature of the goofy, overly identity-obsessed leftists. Like, I think that's more reflective of the reality of the nature of what's happening than, like, violent, organized Antifa thugs sort of being effective and adaptable in using violence and, um, you know meeting their political goals. I think it's much more the other kind of caricature of the left is much more prevalent in these protests. So like disorganized, sometimes overly obsessed with identity, a little silly and narcissistic. And that's not to say all the protests are like that. I'm just specifically referring to the one that, you know, Ben Burgess retweeted that had what was going on in one of these city halls that was taken over. But like, the left as an organized, violent, revolutionary force, don't make me laugh. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's not the case. So, and nor would I even, again, nor would I even really want it to be the case, because I don't believe in, in violence unless it is for self-defense. And I think that that research on the civil rights movement kind of proves the case that when you're very peaceful and the cops act with wanton violence against you, that's when people kind of flock to the cause and see what you're talking about and understand and feel sympathy. Um, So I wouldn't even want it to be the case, just so everybody understands. Um, But it most definitely is not the case that they're this sort of giant threat. All right, next. Sean Hannity invited on uh, Cornell West along with some loudmouth right-winger. And um, they tried to browbeat Cornell West. This was hard to watch. The segment went off the rails. Let's watch parts of it, and then we'll discuss. Dr. West, 749 cops, rocks, bricks, Molotov cocktails, 22 cops in D.C. hospitalized for concussions. 
Uh, we saw a 38-year police veteran murdered uh, in St. Louis. We have a, a cop in Vegas shot in the head, 749. Do you support this madness of defunding the police? Well, we first say it's just good to be in dialogue with you. God bless your, 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 your loved ones. And as you know, we just buried our old brother George. We've all been universal. Professor, the universal agreement. We got to keep it. This, this day has been a very, very heavy day for many of us, my brother. So in talking about universal this, agreement, let's, let's, let's try to be clear about this now. We must have respect, and there must be a ability to protest. You have to have police who respect the community. There has to be community, some community control, accountability of both citizens and police, and recognizing that the deeper issues of poverty, dilapidated schools, housing, shattered family communities, not enough jobs with a living wage, that generates a despair. Professor, let me ask you. Let me ask you a serious question. But there has okay. to be Wait democratic up. control over the police. So professor, right. professor, I need to ask you. Every liberal big city, Chicago, run decades by Democrats. They've allowed the violence, and they, and, they, and they have failed our American children with the most horrific schools in the country. They don't have enough housing, they don't have enough education, and they certainly don't have enough jobs with a living wage. That's under Rahm Emanuel. Now, I'm no fan of Rahm Emanuel. But I'm certainly no supporter, as you know, of you and your good friend, Brother Trump. Why didn't Rahm Emanuel, why did he not fix the violence? I'm going to in the name of truth. Okay, Leo, why didn't he fix the violence? Why haven't they fixed our broken school systems? We have failed America's children. You know, Sean, you ask Dr. Cornell West the type of question you ask in the court of law. He won't answer them because he's just giving me old talking points. I'll speak to you, Dr. Cornell West, black man to black man. There's looting going on, and you try, and you try, you try to conflate. You know, it's my turn. It's my turn. You try to conflate. You try to conflate protesting and police misconduct. And shame on you. And you're absolutely wrong. You won't address the issue. You won't see to address the issue. I'm talking to you. I'm talking. You're not my brother. You're not my brother. You are, you are, you are hurting black people by acting this position. You are taking the wrong position. No, my brother, that stuff plays out. That plays out. Address your question. Do you? Oh, my God. You have lost control. You're a dinosaur. You're an outright dinosaur. You have lost it, sir. I'm not part of your group. I'm not part of your group. You have lost it. You are a dinosaur. If you can't get along with Cornell West, something's wrong with you. You did something wrong if you can't get along with Cornell West. Because Cornell West is one of the most loving, open-minded, open-hearted, open-hearted, is that a word, is that a phrase, I don't know, term, whatever. Um, I have, one of my friends actually ran into him one time in the airport and, you know, like asked for a picture and he was just so kind and happy and, and willing to engage. And you see this all the time. There's nobody who he won't talk to. And go look at, he went on Joe Rogan's podcast a while ago. And it was just such a great conversation. Now, him and Joe don't agree on everything, but that's, he's fine with that. He's, again, willing to have these discussions and willing to go into places that are maybe uncomfortable for people who are rigidly partisan. 
So for this guy to treat him as he did, I mean, that really is disrespectful and shameful and pathetic. Again, if you can't get along with him, something's wrong with you. So, you know, basically the question from Sean Hannity was a standard Fox News Republican type question, which is, hey, cops got hurt too, and um, do you agree with defunding the police, and do you think that violence on cops is is wrong? It was just like a standard set-up, right-wing kind of Hannity framing. And Cornell West's response was, it's good to be in dialogue with you. So, you know, nice to talk to you. It's a very sad day because we just buried Brother George Floyd. Um, then he says, quote, we must have respect and there must be the ability to protect. And then he goes on to say both civilians and the police. So for some reason, they didn't think that was a direct answer. He's saying very clearly, we need to protect both civilians and police, I'm not in favor of wanton violence against the cops any more so than I'm in favor of the cops doing wanton violence against the civilians. I mean, I thought that answer was very, very clear. They're trying to pretend like he dodged it. And then, of course, you go right back to Sean Hannity, and he goes right back into his talking points. All these big cities are run by Democrats. So aren't they to blame for all this? And Cornell West... I mean, how little do they know about Cornell West? What do you think? He's just going to go out there and flat out defend the Democrats in a partisan way? I mean, seriously, how little do you know about Cornell West? Cornell West is never, would never bite his tongue from criticizing the Democrats. He thinks they're part of the problem, just like the Republicans are. So he's not going to defend them. You think that's a gotcha for him? Yeah, okay, so the cities are run by Democrats. Well, and he kind of gets into this. Well, the real problem, we've got to get to the root of the problem to fix these issues. And the root of the problem is, you know, the economy is not good in these cities. There's not enough jobs. There's, you know, we need to have sufficient education. Obviously, you can get into the broader conversation about how we police. They should end the drug war to stop, you know, the fuel that leads to the oppression of poor communities and communities of color. Um, Again, we could get into they shouldn't immediately go to use of force. We need to demilitarize the police. We need special investigators and prosecutors, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And Cornell West starts to have that conversation about the root of the problem, which is people living in misery and poverty and degradation. And they just start screaming at him and act like, see, he's dodging it. He's not being straightforward with you guys. Again, how little do you know about Cornell West? He's not dodging. He's not playing partisan games. He's directly answering the question, and you're still going right for his jugular in some weird partisan right-wing gotcha. It's so sad. Anyway, um, obviously I'm a huge supporter of Cornell West, and I hate that he got ambushed like this. Listen, I've been on Fox News a couple times, and they do try to throw a curveball at you at least once or twice if you're a lefty. On there, They try to throw, like, ah, do, deal with this. And, like, you know, Cornell West is definitely able to handle that because he's a professional. Um, but when you have a, a guest who's openly hostile and not even going to listen to what you say, then it's unavoidable that they're going to – it's going to end up devolving into this. So it's a shame, and that guy better go look in the mirror because, again, if you can't get along with Cornell West, there's something wrong with you.
All right, next. Really, really, really interesting USA Today poll to share with you. It's about this moment that, you know, was, I think, really an eye-opener. The police crackdown to clear protesters from Lafayette Square last week looms as a defining moment in the national debate over race and law enforcement that followed the death of George Floyd. An exclusive USA Today Ipsos poll finds Americans overwhelmingly endorse the right of peaceful protest outside the White House, a view held by nearly 9 of 10 people across racial and partisan lines. Nearly 9 of 10 heard about the clashes that cleared demonstrators before President Donald Trump walked across the square to stand in front of historic St. John's Church holding aloft a Bible. In their wake, Americans, by a huge margin, by 22 percentage points, expressed more trust in the Black Lives Matter movement to promote justice and racial equality than they do in the President of the United States. Former President Barack Obama is more than twice as likely as Trump to be seen as a president who could best handle this moment of civil unrest Now they continue and say, 63% opposed the show of force that swept the protesters from the park just north of the White House. The the scene of many demonstrations in the past, almost half, 44% say they strongly oppose it. So 63% are against what he did there, which means many Republicans as well are like, I'm against what he did there. And again, 9 of 10 people across racial and partisan lines, almost 90%. Say, people should be allowed to protest in front of the White House. Of course, this is a free country, and that's what we do. I mean, listen, I don't, this is one of those instances where we should talk more about the incident in and of itself and not the, like, strategy behind it. But in terms of the strategy, this was a huge mistake, a dumb mistake, incredibly tone deaf. Guys, he lost Pat Robertson. How do you lose Pat Robertson as a Republican president? It's almost impossible to lose Pat Robertson. He lost Pat Robertson. Pat Robertson was like, I don't know about that, Mr. President. That's just not cool. That's what he said. He said, that's just not cool, Mr. President. Not cool. (laughs) You lost Pat Robertson. The whole point of what he was doing here was, Let me try to shore up my base, my base of evangelical Christian fundamentalists who are reliable Republican voters. Let me shore them up leading into the election. And like the core of that demographic, a guy like Pat Robertson, old white dude, evangelical Christian fundamentalist, he was like, ah, man, this wasn't right. This didn't come across right. And then the other thing is, so he decided I'm going to go all in on the law and order angle. I'm going to be the president of law and order. And what became immediately apparent was that what people really wanted to hear at that time from a leader was an understanding, sympathetic, nuanced, calming voice. So, of course, everybody understands as a president, you're not going to go out there and endorse looting and rioting. Duh. But if you give a speech about racial justice and the, the historic evils against black people in this country and the faults of policing and the fact that there needs to be reform and how what happened to George Floyd is unequivocally wrong and 
he should be tried and everybody else should be tried. And we need a moment, uh, an awakening, an enlightenment moment on this issue because this is where the people are now. If you look at the polls, again, Black Lives Matter and racial justice shot up as like an important issue to people. If you led on that issue like a president as opposed to taking a partisan stance of like law and order, shut it all down, that's what people really wanted in this moment. They wanted the, the sympathetic, nuanced voice. And that's why even Obama, who's in many ways not, you know, didn't do a good job as president, but people wanted that kind of a response. Because when you have national crises, like I've told you guys a million times before, people don't want a populist partisan bomb thrower. People want a calming, steady hand of leadership, a soothing voice to guide the country towards what is right and what is just and create a more perfect union to sound a little corny about it here. But he did the opposite, man. He did the opposite. By 22 percentage points, there's more trust in Black Lives Matter than the president to promote justice and racial equality. Wow. Wow. That's something else. So I think apart from the fact that I just substantively disagree with threatening to invoke the Insurrection Act, which I view as deeply unconstitutional and the death of the First Amendment if he follows through, apart from that, strategically... This was incredibly dumb, which, by the way, that's why Trump and all of his cohorts, there, was, there were talks in D.C. about a week ago of, oh, my God, what he really needs to do is give a speech on coming together now. So they realized the misstep pretty much immediately as they did it with tear gassing the peaceful protesters for the stupid photo op. They realized they needed to go in the other direction and have you know, more of a coming together moment. You know, Let's have a leader who cares about bringing everybody in, and, and I don't know if they actually decided they're going to do that speech, but they were considering to do a speech where Trump would literally talk about racial justice. So I, don't, I, I think they probably abandoned it because you can't, it's, there's already too much, the contradiction is immense if you do the law and order and then like, no, 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 I really meant like this is a kumbaya moment. So he, he's a mess. He's a flailing mess right now. Um, really is a turning point, I think. The fact that 9 of 10 Americans are like, of course people should be able to peacefully protest outside of the White House. And Trump tear-gassed those peaceful protesters. That means like 10% of people were like, yeah, I'm cool with that. So, keep shooting himself in the dick, man. That's what's happening. And Biden's at home eating ice cream and watching TV, and that's all he really has to do in order to stay with his massive lead. All right, let me do one more here. Well, those of us who were following this stuff closely knew that eventually the day would come. But now it appears like even people in corporate media are having an awakening and they're realizing what's on the horizon. So CNBC says a housing apocalypse is coming as coronavirus protections across the country expire. Apocalypse. They use the word apocalypse. Housing apocalypse. So I'll give you a little bit of the article here. They say, even before the coronavirus pandemic, the U.S. was experiencing what housing experts and advocates deemed an eviction crisis. Before the pandemic, there was already a crisis. More than 2 million people face eviction each year 
far more than the number of people who face foreclosure at the height of the 2008 mortgage crisis. So we've never, we've never actually gotten past the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. Regular people have been in a perpetual crisis since then. There wasn't an improvement. There was an improvement in the stock market. There was an improvement for the wealthy. There was improvement in the unemployment rate, but the unemployment rate is misleading as an indicator because you could have people getting low-wage jobs and being underemployed, for example. So there was never really a recovery. But now they're saying even before the pandemic, the number of people who are facing evictions is higher than the foreclosure at the height of the 2008 crisis. That's a stunning fact. Experts expect the eviction crisis to get far worse in the coming months. The COVID-19 economic recession has hit renters especially hard. They make up a disproportionate share of service sector jobs, an industry that has been decimated as a result of the coronavirus shutdown. In fact, between March 28th, or excuse me, March 25th and April 10th of this year, nearly half of renters aged 18 to 64 reported they were having trouble paying their rent or utilities, were food insecure, or couldn't afford needed medical care, according to the Urban Institute. Thousands of tenants have been missing rent payments over the past few months. Guys, nearly half of renters either couldn't pay the rent or utilities, were food insecure, or couldn't afford medical care. Half of renters. We're a failed state at this point. We're a failed state. If they don't act, this crisis is going to be, I mean, it's, we already might be in a situation that's as bad as the Great Depression. This could surpass it. You got to understand, we've already, the actual unemployment rate is over 20%. The actual unemployment rate is over 20%. The market is doing well, but only because we've basically fully socialized the market. The Fed said, we will not let you fail at all. Also, Congress did the bailout package of the corporations, $5 trillion worth. So corporations were told, no matter what, you're going to be okay. The stock market, no matter what, the investors are going to be okay. The wealthy are going to be okay. But at the same time, we don't have UBI. We don't have temporary nationalization of wages. We had a one-time payment of $1,200 that didn't even go to everybody. We got a rent crisis, a mortgage crisis, a health care crisis, still a pandemic. What do you think is going to happen? We're playing with fire. This is a ticking time bomb, guys. We're, we're going to have millions and millions and maybe tens of millions of people instantly become homeless the second they get rid of the COVID protections in terms of freezing uh, rent and mortgage payments? Or like what? This is unconscionable. I've never seen anything like this before. And remember, look at what Congress is focusing on. I just told you, they bailed out the corporations. I just covered a story earlier. They're, the Republicans are focusing on Venezuela and Iran, trying to do regime change in Venezuela and Iran and stop trade between those two countries. This is what they're focusing on. Trump is literally writing letters complaining about a poll that he calls fake news that has Biden leading. That's what he's focusing on. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are doing kabuki theater and doing a show 
and they're kneeling to try to do the, like, oh, yes, we care so deeply about George Floyd. All as the country burns and the economy is a house of cards. Um, I've never seen a moment like this where the stock market, the elite, and the politicians were this immensely out of touch with your average American. I don't doubt that they don't even know and they don't care about the coming housing apocalypse. And by the way, this has consequences beyond just this. It'll be a snowball effect that will impact a variety of things about the economy. We needed radical change a long time ago, man. I mean, God damn it. We need Medicare for all. We have people losing health insurance during a pandemic. We need universal basic income at this point. People can't pay the bills. And the fact that these are really not in the conversation, but war with Venezuela and Iran is, but $5 trillion to corporations is, trillion dollars a day from the Fed and liquidity of the market is, that says everything about how broken the system is, how corrupt the system is, how stupid the system is. And now even mainstream media is onto it and saying, oh my God, iceberg dead ahead. You're damn right. It's right there. All right, guys, that is it for the show. I'll tell you what I've been telling you. I hope everybody is staying healthy, staying safe, socially distancing, wearing masks when you go to the grocery store, when you go out in public, when you go to work, if you're in an office. Um, and if you're protesting, there's still a pandemic. You've got to protect yourself. You've got to wear a mask. But I hope everybody's doing okay out there. I love you guys from the bottom of my heart. And I will see you on the show very soon. Much love, y'all. Peace.